While the gift of salvation is entirely free and not owing to any kind of work on our part or any contribution from our side or any merit that we need to earn to make ourselves right with God, uh, Jesus Christ he must do it all, and he has done it all in his sinless, righteous life, in his death upon the cross, and in his resurrection from the grave. We but put our faith in him, in another, and even that is an act of his grace. But while the gift of salvation is entirely free in Jesus Christ, it is at the very same time costly to the ones who want to become a disciple of him. And we come to a text now that shows to us Jesus' own view of discipleship coming out of his own lips, which begins to describe a little bit more about what he means when he invites people to come and follow me. And I don't know that this is the prevalent view of discipleship around the world or what is normally advertised as Christianity or how we view our family and our friends or how we even view ourselves if it is through this lens that Jesus provides for us today. And he knows that which is why I think he's so upfront and even shocking in our text and memorably so. Because understanding the nature of true discipleship is utterly essential to becoming one. Now the scene shifts here from a meal with the Pharisees where Jesus confronts them on their pride by preaching humility, kindness, charity, and his words were custom catered for that audience, an audience which is very anti-Jesus and carries a lot of animosity against him. The scene shifts here from that private meal to the great crowds who are following Jesus, and they are not opposed to him. And there is no animosity. Instead, there's this heartfelt interest and a desire to take to his lead. I'm sure that many, if not most, would categorize themselves as Jesus' followers. And yet Jesus also confronts them as well with these words which are custom catered for that audience. Now, with all the hype and buzz and the growing population of people who seem to be very interested in him, Jesus is saying, don't think you are a follower of me because you've been physically tracking my footsteps or because you've heard some sermons from me and witnessed the mighty works that no one else can do. Don't think you are a follower of me unless you really do understand the terms of discipleship and want to commit to them. Think of the cost first before you decide to commit yourselves to being my disciples. And the structure of this sermon will follow the structure of this text in that Jesus describes the one who cannot be his disciple. That phrase is mentioned three times. Cannot be my disciple, cannot be my disciple, cannot be my disciple. And then Jesus concludes his message to the crowds with a warning on apostasy, which is those who begin to follow and then decide not to later Jesus concludes by illustrating the danger of that kind of falling away in very, very graphic terms. And so we look at the first instance of the one who cannot be a disciple as we read in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If Jesus Christ is not supreme over all other relationships, we cannot be disciples of him. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, then your relationship with him must be the most important relationship in your life. 
in terms of loyalty to and love for allegiance more so to Jesus than to family, than to parents, than to your children, than to your spouse, even more allegiance to them than to yourself. And those who are wanting instead other relationships to be more primary, more important, and more central, and therefore those relationships more cultivated and invested in than our relationship with Jesus, these cannot be his disciples, even those who want to love themselves more than they do him. Now, these are extreme words, and they wouldn't have landed upon the great crowds then with any less difficulty than they land upon us now. I mean, who says, hate your mom, hate your dad, hate your wife, hate your kids, hate your brother, hate your sister, yeah, even hate yourself? Who says things like that? Is Jesus actually commanding us here to hate when the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor even as you love yourself? When the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and your mother, Exodus 20. Is he saying hate your father and mother now? Is Jesus commanding us to hate our spouses when Ephesians 5.25 explicitly tells us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? What does it mean when Jesus says to hate? There's a Hebrew idiom, a figure of speech that contrasts love with hate. And let me give you an example. Genesis 29.30, this is where Jacob is tricked by Laban, who gets Jacob so drunk on his wedding night that he wakes up next to a different woman than he thought he was marrying. Leah, not Rachel, but Leah, Rachel's sister. Laban did that to Jacob, which is traumatizing to say the least. And while he does get Rachel after that, the text is clear there, Jacob loved Rachel. Rachel more than Leah. Next verse, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Now, did Jacob actually hate Leah? No, they shared many children together. He loved Leah, but in comparison to Rachel, that relationship wasn't even close. And in this figure of speech, it is such that one is called love and the other comparatively called hate because one relationship utterly trumps the other one. Those who want to follow Jesus must make Jesus their primary relationship in this life where every single other relationship doesn't even come close, no matter how much you love your parents, your spouse, your children, no matter how much you love yourself. In Hebrew idiom or not, figure of speech or hyperbole or whatever, Jesus chooses this extreme vocabulary for a reason because it is a kind of vocabulary which would arrest the crowds and caused them to take a step back and to gasp when whether they took it in and understood it or not, the design is such that you can't follow me unless you think about what it means to follow me. This is Jesus being crystal clear on the cost of being a disciple of his. We don't just add Jesus to our already full lives and somewhere fit him in within the pecking order of so many things which are going on. We must place him upon the very throne of our lives. And this is not always obvious here in our country, but perhaps an illustration may help. It was several years ago at a pastor's conference, shepherd's conference, I heard a preacher uh, tell the testimony of a young lady attending a Christian college, the master's uh, college at the time. She was a Muslim a year before coming to the United States. And upon her visit here, she came to Christ and she became a, a, a Christian. It was a dramatic change. She had heard the word, uh, she listened to the gospel message uh, for the first time, and she responded to Jesus' call, uh, baptized. It was an amazing story of beautiful salvation. 
When she went back to her home country, uh, however, she was arrested because where she is from, it's illegal for a Muslim to convert to Christianity. It's literally considered a crime. Her father, who still loved her regardless, was able to use his influence and power to somehow arrange her release. But one day upon coming home uh, and her mom was not there and her dad was not there, her uncle uh, had been there, and, and he says to her, you have brought so much shame on this family by your Christianity that in order to preserve the honor of this family, you must die. And her uncle grabs her and slams her around in the kitchen and beats her up against the wall until she crumbles onto the floor. And then he picks up a chair and begins to pummel her uh, with it, separating her shoulder, separating her knee, uh, blooding her until someone finally came into the house and rescued her. Uh, again, her father, having some kind of pool, uh, was able to get her on a plane and, and come back to our country. But the pastor, uh, MacArthur, John MacArthur, had asked her, what were you thinking when your uncle was in the process of almost beating you to death? She said, I was thinking that this man has a religion that he would kill for, and I have a savior that I would die for. Now, at any point, if family meant more to her, she could turn away from Jesus and it's all done. Give me my family back. Give me the enjoyment of their love back. Or just knock Jesus down much lower on that relational priority list. Perhaps keep your devotion secret and small. Lie about it. Camouflage it. What not? If her own life meant more to her, well, then switch up those allegiances. But her testimony and many others like her, even those who do not get rescued from physical death, are testaments to us about what it means to follow Jesus Christ in terms of loving him more than we do love anyone else. In terms of our relationship with him, trumping every single other one in the sense where Jesus Christ we loved, all else hated. And there's something about Jesus' very own words in passages like Mark 3, and on. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother, for it is, even if friends and family are to abandon us and create that distance more and more, especially the more and more we grow in our devotion to him. Even when those who we love so dearly begin to step away, we know that there is family beyond family and ties that go beyond blood ties. For even in Jesus' call to place him supreme, it is the same Jesus who calls us his own brothers and sisters, and it is he who calls us his very own friends, Lord of all that he is. Now, here in Hawaii, Kai, no one is going to kill you, at least right now, for loving Jesus. But it is that even our own family can become this idol put before him that we worship and care most about, whether it's their approval that we long for, uh, uh, their needs, even financial. I mean, this is especially true for young parents who are so concerned about their children that their kids' desires and needs are elevated literally above everything else. Can't do that. It's nap time. Their hopes, their dreams, yada, yada, I have to serve that rather than I must be a disciple of Jesus and trust him with all the rest. What we do is chase and chase and chase and push him further out into the margins. And we've seen this even within our own church family. Oftentimes, what stands before Jesus Christ and us are those people we are tempted to love more than him. And there have been many who have come through initially filled with so much zeal, and yet because of unbelieving family, friends, peers, and whatnot, they decide to care more about that and listen to more about this and drift away from him little by little until it's finally gone. There are certain decisions that we will each need to make that the unbelieving world will look at and think, this person, what is this person doing? 
they don't love their family at all. I mean, they love Jesus too much. This person's foregoing uh, more money to spend more time in worship and in service to the church. Doesn't make any sense. His family then goes on as many trips as we do or participate in as many extracurriculars. I mean, they are fanatics because everything else is so secondary to them. Even their own comfort and security is just so contrary to how we live our lives. And that is exactly the point. Jesus is calling us to an actual and real discipleship, brothers and sisters, not something that looks so like unbelief with just a little Jesus sprinkle on top. I mean, so little that you can't even taste it, that anyone can barely tell the difference. And so it is here that no one who desires to love family more than Jesus or spouse or children more than him, yes, even if we love ourselves more than him, is able to become one of his disciples. It's important that we understand this cost. Verse 27, we look at the next phrase of one who cannot be a disciple, and we read there. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is the second use of that phrase in our passage. If we are unwilling to endure shame and suffering in our pursuit of Jesus Christ, Uh, we cannot be disciples of him. For anyone who is thinking that following Jesus means health and wealth and easy times and smooth sailing all the time, then Jesus here is clanging the pots and the pans to wake us up from that fantasy. We have a Savior who bears a cross and who asks his followers to bear their own as well. Now, when Jesus says bear his own cross, this is pre-Jesus actually being on the cross. When Jesus says, bear a cross and come after me, there is not an ounce of glamour or romanticism in it. In the first century, only the worst kinds of criminals would carry their crosses to the place where that cross would then carry them. Even Roman citizens who committed the worst of crimes, they couldn't be crucified by law because that was a kind of death which would be beneath their dignity. Crucifixion was a special kind of execution reserved for only the lowest of the lows. And it would take hours and hours that would extend into days before that crucified one would actually die. It was the worst form of torture that that time period had to offer. And it was meant to be a very public form of it so that people would walk by and think, I never ever want to be like that person hanging bloody and naked and asphyxiated right over there. It was public by design to act as a deterrent for anyone who is contemplating a life of future crime. But perhaps what made it even more so shameful is that these ones would have to take a long march carrying that cross through the streets and through the jeers as their very last leg in this life, enduring the shame of it all and feeling its weight, exhausting the body prior to that miserable death. The entire process was so horrific that the word crucifixion would never be uttered in polite settings, and it was considered in and of itself a curse word. And yet Jesus is saying here, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, which we each and we are called to bear cross, brothers and sisters. Now, this is not, oh, I ran over a nail and have a flat tire. I guess this is just my cross to bear. Or the electricity bills are up. My internet is slow. I guess this is just my cross to bear. I got an iPhone 6. I wish it was an iPhone 14. I guess this is just my cross to bear. 
No, Jesus is referring to the shame and the jeers and the varying forms of persecution meeting out against a people who want to pursue their Lord and their Savior. It is a very particular kind of suffering. Now, I don't know if it's just a coming-of-age thing or just a little bit more maturity or, or whatnot, the changing of the times, but I do feel that the Christian cross is a little heavier than it once was, albeit not nearly as heavy as many of our brothers and sisters around the world. But if we don't expect it to feel heavy, then we're going to drop it. Remember years ago, me and my cousin were, were trying to move one of those old tube TVs, flat screen Trinitron. I don't know if you remember that. They're about this size, but they weigh like 250 pounds. And we pick it up, took a few steps, and we dropped it. I mean, I, we didn't realize how heavy it was going to be. And, and the corner of the TV hit the door frame, fell on the floor, because that plastic base was digging into each of our hands. And I remember turning it on after, and it had a purple spot in the corner right where it hit the wall. But that's what happens when you don't expect the weight. And if we aren't careful when we are treated differently or canceled or witness eye rolls because we love Jesus and his word and his church and, and unashamedly so, if we aren't careful, then the very first time we experience even the mildest forms of it, we're going to be tempted to drop it all because it hurts or, or to hide it all because we don't like the feeling of the consequences of it. I don't do it. Don't lay down your cross. It's not worth it. All the smiles of the world and its applause and accolades, none of these are worth it. They're all passing and will be over just like that. You know, for some of us, I think we just need to get over being cool. You know, for those of you who are younger here and you want to love Jesus, I'll let you know this. You're not going to be cool at all. So please don't try and play this half and half game. For others of us who, who just don't want any type of attention, we need to stop loving Jesus in a closet. We need to stop playing it safe all the time. But I do think it is that once you get used to, once you get used to pursuing Jesus, there can be this freedom to it all. Uh, not being overly concerned with how you are being perceived. And there you might actually find that Jesus' yoke is light and his burden easy because we've been decisive in turning our backs upon the world and walking in Jesus' very own footsteps that when you feel the jeers and the shame and perhaps the suffering, you just but look ahead and see Jesus enduring the same before you. But unless we're intentional about it, we're not gonna pick up that cross. Luke chapter nine, verse 23, Jesus tells us there to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow him. I mean, we actually have to be pretty decisive about it every day. Wake up in the morning, brush your teeth, and start thinking about the cross you have to bear. Because if we don't do that daily, it's not going to ever happen. And when the crowds in our text are large, and the hype and the buzz is fresh, and the miracles are tantalizing, Jesus knows in just a few short days, and even the weeks, it will be altogether a different story, and this crowd would disperse, but not because Jesus didn't warn them of what was to come. They will disperse because that cross was uncomfortable enough for them and it was heavier than they thought and they dropped it and turned to the next thing they wanted to pursue instead and Jesus is saying here whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple we must understand the cost verse 28 we look at the third occurrence of that same phrase and we read there for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, 
All who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I mean, here we have the third layer, uh, and Jesus explicitly just comes out and declares a cause straight up. It's the renouncing of all that we have, that nothing in our lives, our relationships, reputations, comforts, possessions, none of it at all must be held in any kind of competition with them. And anyone who desires to follow Jesus must be aware of this kind of cost. And he illustrates this with two visuals. The first is that of a builder who started to build and couldn't finish because he didn't count the cost. You know, I don't know if you've seen any incomplete projects around town that just sit there for months and months and years even, and everyone wonders what happened. Something must have happened. Or maybe you got some home improvement projects in your house right now, and you just run out of gas. Everyone comes over like, let me explain what happened. A lot of times people begin to follow Jesus with initial zeal and excitement, perhaps join a church and even get involved. Then a few months go by, years, usually much shorter than that, and then they disappear, and everyone wonders what happens. And there's almost nothing more shameful and embarrassing as starting off strong and then leaving off just as strong. And there may be some of you who are debating, maybe not explicitly, but more subliminally, if this is all even worth it. And this passage is for us as well. This builder is like the parable of the soils from a different angle. That that word which was sowed in that art got snatched up or choked out by the cares of this world. Or it was just so shallow that it never took root. We must count the cost before we try to commit to following Jesus. For it will be a mockery of him and of ourselves if we bail out early. The second visual is that of a king contemplating war that you have to enumerate your opponent's military strength before you go and meet him. If you can beat him, well, then maybe go. If you can't, you definitely need to look for peace. But either way, you have to count. You have to calculate. And this isn't only about shame now. This isn't only about the embarrassment of an incomplete building project. War is a matter of life and of death. The stakes are much, much higher. And Jesus is saying here, you want to be my disciples? You better count because you have to renounce everything that you have. For nothing in our lives, relationships, reputations, comfort, possessions, none of it at all must be held in any kind of competition with him we must literally, in our minds, put all that we are and all that we have on one side of the scale and with Jesus on the other side of it, ask ourselves which side carries more weight with us. Now let's pause for a moment, and I think it's important to do so, to clarify. This is not, uh, first and foremost, a text which is telling us how to become a Christian. That if we first can sell all and hate all, and turn away from all, then, then we've really gotten God's attention as someone who stands head and shoulders above the rest of the crowd, that that is how we get saved. If we have to do these things perfectly, otherwise we can't be saved, then we are all toast, brothers and sisters. This is not a how-to. 
If it is, then none of us can do it. Our actions do not produce salvation. Salvation produces actions. There is an order. And perhaps uh, maybe another parable can help fill this out. I'll read to you Matthew 13, 44. You can turn there or just listen. Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In his joy. Why is it joyful to lose everything he has? Because everything he possesses cannot be even compared to that treasure he's been searching for. The scales are thoroughly imbalanced in favor of the kingdom. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the scales are up. All that he has on one side and that one pearl of great price on the other, and there is no comparison. These parables are not about earning or about meriting. These parables are about valuing things properly, especially the kingdom of God. And discipleship is very much the same thing. It is ultimately first and foremost about valuing Jesus Christ rightly because it is universally true that what we ultimately value determines who or what we follow. Always what we value most, we will be discipled towards. You want more money, you're going to be discipled in the financial times to build your acumen. You're going to pursue with your reading. You're going to contemplate and meditate on it, yada, yada. You want to raise successful kids in the way that the world defines it? Then you're going to be researching this and that, schools, athletics, extracurriculars. But you desire this or you desire that, and you're going to follow this or you're going to follow that. You're into fitness. All your YouTube algorithm is going to show you fitness stuff. They know you. What you desire is what you pursue because, again, what we ultimately value determines who or what it is that we follow. And here is where we find the very heart of discipleship, which is seeing Jesus for who he really is as that great pearl or that hidden treasure because this passage is more Christology than it is everything else. It's Christology, which then translates to discipleship and pursuing him. I mean, Jesus, last passage, just spoke about his banquet which is going to be the culmination of our salvation. And Jesus in our text is saying, you got to hate everything else compared to loving me. You have to endure shame and scorn and pain and persecution if you want to follow me. You must give everything else for me. And it all sounds so extreme unless it is that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. You know, there are a handful of military people in our church, Ohana, and, and until I became one of the pastors here, I never got to appreciate from up close and personal, uh, just the sacrifice that so many of you make towards serving our country. You know, we have people who are deployed and, and leave their, their families and their homes, uh, even new babies or new wives, behind for months and even longer than that. And in times of war, they go to war. And they leave everyone they love behind. They leave their house, their comforts, their everything. Because there is a greater call upon them than these things. And there are many who have died for their country, and we honor their deaths because they lived and died for something of great, great worth, which is far greater than what any one person can possess. 
And yet it is, we read texts like Psalm 2, that the raging nations, the kings of the earth, the rulers, they're literally a drop in the bucket that God sits in the heavens and laughs. For not even one nation uh, as ours is bigger or greater than Yahweh or of any kind of comparable value. You know, I, I, don't think, I don't think that if we understand the person and the magnitude of Jesus Christ, I don't think at all that this cost of discipleship is extreme in the least bit, nor is valuing him above even your spouse and children and comfort at home for something so much bigger and glorious than you is religious fanaticism. Again, this is Christology, the study and the realization of who Jesus is. Is Jesus actually God or is he not? Is he worthy or is he not? Do we understand his worth and his value? And if we do not, more and more so, then we cannot be his disciples, brothers and sisters. And so while true as it is, that Jesus Christ is the pearl of great price of which nothing we owned and have can compare in value. Actually, the nuance in our text is a warning to the large crowds who are following him to arrest them, to have them take a step back and contemplate, do I really understand who it is that I'm following to the degree that I can be a disciple proportionately to his great worth? And so these three cannot be my disciple phrases, which highlight the priority of relationship, suffering and shame endured, renouncing all that we have, highlight exactly how worth it he is. And then Jesus concludes his teaching with a warning on apostasy in verse 34, where we read, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile, it is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus calls those who follow him and then fall away from him. And Jesus calls them worthless, as worthless as salt that's not even salty. And salt that is no longer salty, it's not fit for dirt, nor is it even fit to throw on a pile of manure. I mean, this is graphic. This is highly offensive, this is very harsh, and it is a warning to anyone who has ears to hear, to those Christians and disciples who really love all the things in the world more than the God who created all of those things by his word. Do we have ears to hear? And it seems that that phrase is for particularly difficult sayings uh, that call us to contemplate where we're really at. But I want you to notice that there's not these tiers of disciples. Sometimes we think, well, there's some teaching for the more serious Christians and the hardcore. And then there's some passages for these kinds of Christians. And for most of the regular ones, texts like these don't apply to us. Mm -mm, that, that's not what Jesus is doing. This is really for anyone who wants to become a disciple. And this is likely the most important kind of text for people who are familiar with Jesus and listen to his word and are involved in a church to dig right into our hearts to ascertain if we are really his or if we are not. You know, sometimes I, I do get a little nervous when we come to texts like these, which I realize is quite frequent in the book of Luke and actually in the rest of the Bible as well. But I can get a little nervous because I never know how texts like these and sermons like these are gonna land. And especially so when all the church growth and evangelism people are saying, you got to be winsome. 
You got to make the Bible attractive. You got to make the gospel look good, highlight and accent just those things which are appealing. Maybe you can hide or camouflage texts like these that talk about cost. It might be offensive. And here the crowds are growing and the buzz is high and people are following Jesus. Why not, Jesus, be a little bit more encouraging instead? I think it might help your bottom line. I think it might help the crowds get bigger than they already are. Why not be a little bit more sensitive to those who are seeking to follow you? Because I think he knows that a crowd is not always a church. And the true church is a family of believers who have counted the cost and want to follow Jesus Christ, and unashamedly so, who have sold all for that treasure and given up everything for that pearl of great price and are not foolish. For Jesus Christ is worth more than a thousand worlds combined and is more than worthy of your heart of devotion to him regardless of what it may cost you in this life. The only question really for us who want to follow is do we really believe it? And that's the question that is the most important question for us at the end of the day. Do we really believe it? Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, we know that we can never work our way to you. We just can't. We can't earn our place in your kingdom and, and, and merit our place in your family. And so we thank you so much for Jesus Christ who lived sinlessly and righteously and who died a death that he did not deserve but that we deserve and endured a wrath that was against our sin upon himself in our place and who has resurrected and who will return soon. By your grace, would you give us eyes to see your glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Show us how the high cost of discipleship isn't really all that high compared to the treasure that is your son and the glory of his kingdom. We ask, God, that you would help us, that you would make us, that you would help us to enjoy him and understand your love for us in him more and more, that we might be mighty instruments in your hands, in our church community, in Hawaii Kai, and throughout the rest of the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.